Good morning. I would encourage you to uh, keep your Bibles open to this passage, and we're going to be referring to some other passages as well. Um, There are there is so many scriptures that we would like to refer to today. We're only going to look a few. But before we start on this passage, I want to get, I want to talk to you just a little bit about James. Uh, We don't hear about him very much. Um, He's kind of, I think, looked at as kind of someone on the fringe, right? But James was was the brother of Jesus, not the brother of John, the brother of Jesus, who came to faith in Christ after the resurrection of our Lord. He was called James the Just because of his integrity and because of his piety. And he, was a, he became a prominent leader and shepherd of the church in Jerusalem. Josephus, Josephus the historian recorded that James was eventually brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem, and like Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Christ around 62 AD. James lived out his faith and in this letter is urging fellow believers in Christ to live out their faith. As he calls us, as did Jesus, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James begins this epistle by encouraging his brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He encourages us to pray. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 1, 5. And in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. James is and was an encourager. In addition, he also, in this book, expresses his love for his fellow believers. Again and again, in these five chapters of this book, James refers to fellow believers in Christ as my brothers. And three times in chapters 1 and 2, he refers to fellow believers as my beloved brothers. James loved the Lord, and he loved his brothers and sisters in the church. And because of this love, and because of God's love, James not only encourages and, and loves the church, but he also, in this letter, warns the church. And he warns the church specifically about being deceived, especially about self-deception. And he does this three times early on. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 122. And he says, do not be deceived, my brothers. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the follower of lights. That's verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And then in, at the end of uh, chapter 1 in verse 26, James writes, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is a pretty frank guy. He gets right to the point, doesn't he? So as we study this admittedly difficult passage today, I want us to do so with the understanding of of three or four things. Number one, this is the very word of God. And it's written from the perspective of encouragement and love and a warning about being deceived. So let's begin with verses 14 through 17, where James begins by asking three very pointed questions. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, when I first read this passage, the first question I had was, what faith is James talking about? Faith in what? Today, in, as in biblical times, most people have some type of faith, one or more types. Their faith may be in a gold statue, but more likely today in the gold itself. Their faith may be in themselves due to their knowledge, our special skills, our work ethic, personality, power, or even their good looks, which I might add to those of you who are young, will not last. (laughs) Their faith may be in pleasure, entertainment, government, or the alignment of the stars in the heavens. Currently, and this is from Pastor Ben, it is common for people to even have faith in faith, saying, I have faith, and because I have faith, everything will work out because I am a spiritual person. Alternatively, many people today, when asked, will tell you that they believe in God And they believe they will go to heaven if they live a good life. So we have all these types of faith. And all of these types of faith, including the last one that I mentioned, have one thing in common. None of them, none of them will get a single soul into the kingdom of heaven. Do not be deceived about that. Furthermore, these kinds of faiths are not the faith that James is addressing in this passage. James is addressing the issue of someone who makes a verbal claim that she, he or she has faith in Christ, but has no works, no fruit in their life that demonstrate that claim of faith. Alexander McLaurin, who was probably one of the most prominent preachers in the 19th century, uh, in Scotland, wrote in chapter 1 that in chapter 1 in chapter, and early in chapter 2 when James used the word faith, James meant faith 
and this is a quote from McLaurin, by the full evangelical meaning of trust, which means completely trusting in Christ alone for salvation and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. In contrast, McLaurin wrote, the word faith in 14 means a mere uh, means a mere intellectual belief of religious truth, and McLaurin called this intellectual belief a barren orthodoxy. James gives us a realistic example in his day of a person in the church who was surviving but was hungry, lacked adequate clothing, and I will add, had no heat in their home. Seeing these obvious needs, these obvious needs, one responds by giving them good wishes rather than actual food, clothing, or fuel, or the means to obtain them. So James is saying in verses 14 and 15 that an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus as God's Son is not saving faith just as well wishes and good thoughts for those hungry and cold do not provide nutrition and warmth. I think we're all on the same page so far, right? Then James makes a sobering statement in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And this is where eyebrows probably are raised, and the searching of Scripture should begin because McLaurin adds this. We may observe that verse 14 begins with the supposing case of a mere lip faith, while verse 17 widens its conclusions to include not only that, but any faith, however real, which does not lead to works. And then he adds, emotions and beliefs which do not shape conduct, are worthless. Faith, if it has not works, is dead. End of quote from McLaurin. Verse 17 is and has been a troubling statement for many, not the least of which was Martin Luther. This verse raises serious questions. Is James contradicting Paul? Are we saved by faith alone? Are we saved by faith plus works? Are we saved by works only? And I want to explore this today from the perspective, beginning with this perspective of Jesus' teachings. We're going to primarily go there. Jesus talked about this many times. We're going to focus, however, on the Sermon on the Mount and throw in some other scripture. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount, as you know, is referred to often as the greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus closes that sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 17, and he speaks of false prophets, and he also speaks of false disciples. I'm going to give you some scripture, and just hold on as I work my way through it. Matthew 7, 15 through 17. Beware of false prophets. These are preachers and teachers in the church. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. These people that Jesus is talking about 
are imposters who pretend to follow Christ, but in reality have the goal of tearing the church apart or enriching themselves in some manner at the expense of the church. James is not addressing this type of faith because it is a counterfeit faith. But four verses later, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 17, 21, Jesus addresses false disciples. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus puts this in a slightly different way with a question. And the question is, in that verse, but why do you call me Lord? And repeats it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. These people hearing Jesus preach in that Sermon on the Mount were to some extent followers of Christ. They were perhaps following him with the best of intentions to hear great Old Testament teaching because nobody taught like Jesus did or to be fed, perhaps, or to be healed, or perhaps they thought he could deliver them from the Romans. They were calling him Lord, and indeed he is Lord, but they were not being obedient to, to his commands by at least attempting to put them into practice in their lives. To call someone Lord is to acknowledge that person's authority. To call someone's Lord and then disregard their instructions to live, and then disregard their instructions is to live as a liar and a hypocrite. Hardships and trials quickly reveal those who who put Jesus' teachings into practice rather than merely hearing and agreeing with them. That is why James said in chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the words and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Did Jesus ask hard things of his followers? Emphatically, the answer is, yes, he did. One example is found, and this is where I, let's turn and look at this, because I actually just added this a little bit ago. I don't have it in my notes. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, I believe it is. I'm reading from the New King James Version, but it's, it's basically the same. Enter by the way of the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus never promises an easy road. Okay, now turn over to Matthew 19. This is a familiar passage. I'm going to read 16, and then we're going to move quickly to 20. 
Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And then I'm going to move to, to, uh, Jesus, uh, to 18. Uh, and Jesus tells him to keep his, uh, he said, you should keep the commandments. And the man said, which ones? Well, the, the obvious answer is all of them. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not fare ball, uh, bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have done, from my, I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowfully because he had great possessions. Jesus sometimes asks us to do different things and difficult things, and he does it because he wants to have first place in our lives. The last thing that he asked when he told his people, and I think this is when he really started losing followers, was when he said in Luke 9:22, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised." And he said to all that were in attendance, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is, they absolutely understood what Jesus was asking them to do because everybody knew what, it was, meant, what was meant by taking up a cross. Jesus says, when you follow me, take up a cross daily and die to yourself and do what I want you to do. Perhaps the most difficult thing, however, that Jesus ever asked anyone to do was, was, was to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Jesus often asked us to do very difficult things. And many then and many today hear this teaching, perhaps believing that in Jesus is indeed the Son of God, but they are not willing to give up their current lives, our current lifestyle, in order to follow him. Taking up that cross daily, again, means dying to self daily and living for Christ. It means putting Christ first, before all others, and before all other things. It is a process completed by, by believers' works, but primarily by God's Holy Spirit. In the church in Jerusalem, some were professing that Jesus was the Son of God, and perhaps they believed he indeed was raised from the dead, but they were not living as our Lord calls us to live because there had been no visible change in their lives. The basic problem, it, it seems, was, no, was, was there was no sacrificial love in that church for some believers. Is Jesus saying that we enter the kingdom by works? Absolutely not. He is saying that true, genuine faith 
is evident by following his commands to love the Lord and love one's neighbor. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 26 and 27. Hear this. And everyone, excuse me, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Believers glorify God and identify themselves with him by producing spiritual fruit which includes good works and steadfast character. Where there is no spiritual fruit, there is no spiritual life, there is no faith. David Jeremiah. Let's move on to verse 18 through 20. Now, these verses, before I read them, are basically continue the argument established in the previous verses, 14 through 17, that we just took a look at. James introduces here what is called a a rhetorical respondent, a fictional person in, in verse 18. This was a common writing style in his day. It is important to note that this fictional person is called someone. And that someone is not addressing James, but is, is, but is challenging the person in verse 14 who says he has faith but has no works. Just to get it in perspective, because I had to read it several times thinking he's talking to James and he's not. But someone will say, someone is the fictional person, but someone will say, you, meaning the person in verse 14, you have faith who says he has faith. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want me to be, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works, is useless. James 2.18 implies to me that true faith always produces good works because true faith motivates a person to please God. And I'm going to give you two verses as reference. We're not going to read them. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and Hebrews 6.10. Now, apparently the challenge to the man who said he has faith was, show me your faith. And his response was this, I believe that God is one. And this is found in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And was part of the creed of Israel. And Jesus quotes this scripture in Mark. In other words, the man who says he has faith, rather than showing any evidence of it, 
reiterates what he believes. I believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James responds to this by saying, that is true and you do well to acknowledge the truth. And then he adds the caveat, but even the demons believe that God is one and tremble at the thought because of the judgment to come. We know from scripture that demons know very well who Jesus is, the very son of God. They understand his power. They understand his majesty. They understand his holiness, but they are not saved, and neither is a man who says he has faith, but has no works or fruit in his life to demonstrate that faith. And then we move on to verse 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James points to Abraham's obedience of offering up Isaac as verifying and fulfilling Abraham's faith. James then quotes Genesis 15, 6, which says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul was using Genesis 15, 6 to establish that Abraham was justified by faith alone. And he reiterates this in Romans 4, Ephesians 2, and in Galatians 3. So the question is, how do we reconcile these two positions? And I think we reconcile them based on the context of their situation, specifically the people to whom they are writing. Paul was writing to essentially Gentile churches in Galatians and Ephesians, who were being told by false teachers that they needed to be obedient to the Mosaic ceremonial law, especially the act of circumcision, in order to be saved. Paul refutes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of work so that no one may boast. You may also see a comparable scripture to this, and I would encourage you to look it up, in John 1 verses 12 through 13. Paul was addressing saving faith. And please know this, like Paul, James also refutes this very issue of needing to keep the law in Acts chapter 15 at the council of the church with Paul and Barnabas in attendance. You can read that for yourself, Acts chapter 15. Let me add 
that we often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And that is true. And we often forget about verse 10, which follows. Verse 10, written by Paul to the church at Ephesus, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. While Paul was writing primarily to Gentile Christians, James was writing primarily to Jewish Christians, some of whom, as we have said, professed Christ but were not, but were not obeying the commands of Jesus. And just as Jesus, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, these two men were looking at Abraham's faith from two angles or two perspectives. Paul's perspective was from that of saving faith. James' perspective was from one of a proof of faith. This is a difficult subject, but I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer summed it up best, at least for me, in one statement when he said this, Faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. So what is the application for us? Well, interestingly enough, Paul calls for us to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13.5. In order to see if we are indeed in the faith, let me read it for you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So what is the test? Well, according to Scripture, there are several, but I just want to point out two this morning. What are two tests? The first test is, have you been born again? Jesus 3, 3 in speaking to me, uh, Jesus. Jesus in John 3, 3 in speaking to Nicodemus said, Most assuredly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus also said in John 3, 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so the question when we examine ourselves is this, has the Spirit of God ever convicted you of your need for Christ? This may be accomplished in different ways, but it primarily happens upon hearing or reading the Word of God. Upon having the conviction that you, have you, uh, uh, of the need for Christ, has, have you repented of sin and asked Christ to be Lord of your life? Was there a time when this happened? I have talked to some in my own extended family who, told, who have told me I have always been a Christian. And they can never remember a time of receiving Christ. And let me tell you, this gives me great concern because my personal experience is conviction of a need to repent of sin and ask Christ to be my Savior. You must be born again. 
That's the first test. And the second test is, has there been a significant change in your life? Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then I'm jumping down to verse 20, where he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and are truly saved, you are an ambassador for Christ. Works, fruit, spiritual growth, and a desire to be a faithful servant to our Lord are all manifestations of the work of the Spirit of God within us after we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. There are other tests as well, and I urge you to read the epistle of 1 John in order to learn about them. And if you're here today and you have never come to faith in Christ, I urge you to turn to him today. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first was confirmed by the Lord? And I urge you today, again, turn to Christ, repent of your sins, Call upon him for his mercy. Alistair Begg says, run to Christ. Run to him. For if Romans 10.13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.